maximize every opportunity so that you can become you legend and become legendary. What adjustments can you make right now to make yourself one Your percent better? Your only goal is to be the best version of you. Sarah, welcome to Becoming Legendary. Thanks. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Thanks for being on. So it is my understanding that you are both an acupuncturist and a movement specialist. Is that an appropriate uh, sum summarization? Sure. Yeah, that's pretty pretty accurate. Um, you know, I do. I acupuncture is uh, kind of my main focus, but you know, I do have a background in sports medicine and strength and conditioning and um, you know physical therapy. So all things movement, all things uh, rehab and self-care related. Cool. Yeah. How, how did you find your way into this particular world? Into the world of sports medicine? Into the world in which you exist right now, whatever, whatever that entails. Wow, wow, that's, where should I begin? Um, <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, I grew up, um, I, you know, I've always been an athlete. I grew up in a small town in Massachusetts. Um, uh, I grew up, I have three older brothers, they're all athletes, and so, you know, I kind of had that natural um, tendency to follow in their footsteps. So grew up in a house full of athletes. And um, the first time I sprained my ankle bad enough to land me in physical therapy, I was about 12 years old. And the moment I stepped foot into that PT room is the moment I realized that sports medicine was my calling. Um, you know, I thought it was just super cool that there was a job that existed that, you know, you could go and help athletes get back into playing their sport. And I had no idea, you know, I no idea that that, that was something that existed. Mm. And so, um, you know, from 12 years old on, I had my eye set on that, on that prize of studying sports medicine and, um, you know, being that, um, you know, even at that young age, I, I, I kind of had an inkling that being a professional athlete and making a career out of being an athlete wasn't, you know, the odds weren't really in my favor. Mm. And so, you know, using physical therapy, uh, athletic training, sports medicine, that was kind of my way to let my inner athlete just kind of uh, continue long after, you know, I retired from, uh, from actually competing. So um, I was all in, I, I, I went all in, I, I knew from a very young age that um, some realm of sports medicine was going to be my thing. And, um, you know, throughout uh, my education, I, I was exposed to a lot of different types of um, you know, d different disciplines within the realm of, of sports medicine and even performance training. And um, eventually I ended up in acupuncture. It was, uh, it was something that just kind of fell into my lap and it just felt natural. And it felt like, um, you know, it was something at the time that no one else was doing. Nobody else, yeah. you know, back when I was just getting out of college, nobody else was really integrating um, this ancient medicine of acupuncture with modern sports medicine. It was still kind of an unknown, very, very, uh, very small niche. And it still is to this day, um, you know, and I kind of have a natural affinity of, of taking the path less traveled. And so when I, when I discovered acupuncture, I was like, that's it, that's my niche. And I'm going to be that sports medicine acupuncturist that helps everybody, you know, elevate their performance in life and in the gym. So here that's I am. Rad. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's kind of the, the short version of, of how I got that's here. Perfect. Yeah, yeah, that's perfect. Okay. So I just realized something as you said it and everybody has heard the, the idiom, right? Like, Oh no, only, 
one in 10 million people become a professional athlete, right? Mm -hmm. But that's true about farmers and that's true about miners and that's true about like technical consultants. Like the reality is it's very unlikely we become anything. (laughs) And I've never realized (laughs) that before, but it's very true. It's actually really unlikely that any of us are born. For sure. That's true. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Let's start from that. Yeah, exactly right. Let's start from conception, right? So yeah, you're right. You're right. Okay, so, so go ahead, Brian. No, you go ahead. You have okay. So first. I want to I want to touch really quick on um, the the primary the primary points of dysfunction, and mm. I have a I have a guess, and I, I just want to I just want to see uh, if you had to pick the top two primary points of dysfunction within the human body, maybe the joints. The, the two, the two sets of joints, the two joints that have the most dysfunction in the human body, what, what would you say those are? Gosh, I mean, that's kind of, that's a really hard, hard question to answer. Cause it's so, it's so different from person to person, but jet, like very general, very basic kind of a yeah. blanket. Um, I would say, um, hips and ankles. Mm-hmm. I think, I think, um, a lot of issues stem from hips and ankles. One, because we wear shoes, right? Sure. <laughs> we some of you do right um i want my feet to get as much exposure to the elements as my hands do you know so i'm, I'm barefoot as much as possible but um you know we wear shoes that are really restricted and it affects our foot and ankle mobility for sure mm-hmm. and when that happens everything from the you know from the ground up is affected so that's number one the other thing i mentioned hips and other than um, sitting or um, other than um, wearing shoes all day, a lot of us tend to sit down at a desk or, you know, driving a car or whatever. We sit down a lot. So we kind of get stuck into this hip flexed position and hip mobility, ankle mobility are very common, probably the most common um, joint restrictions that, that I make. Patrick and I have gone back and forth several times about the restriction that we feel in our hips. <laughs> so we just turned, I'm 42 right now. I think Patrick is the same age. Um, and we spent a lot of time together on his farm working. We work together as well. So um, he has this, he has this gate that's like about, how tall is that gate, Patrick? Like three or four feet tall? <laughs> You're, it's right three and your, a half feet tall. It's right to, it's right to your <laughs> left. Exactly right. So, so, and it, and it blocks off sort of from his animals, um, where, where his animals are permitted and, and where they're not. And so every time we go in between that space, we're, we're constantly doing like a mini hurdle, you know, with either the right leg, I try to rotate the right leg and then rotate the left leg. And my goodness, I can tell the restrictions that are there that I didn't even know I had by, by a simple exercise of just trying to hurdle a three and a half foot gate. So <laughs> And not many people are even exploring that on a day-to-day basis, right? So um, this kind of leads me into my next question, Sarah. So because every like physical body that you see and you evaluate is so different, right? So are, are there specific like tools and techniques you use in your practice to help determine the correct treatment plan? Or is it, um, I'll leave it at that. Yeah, no, that's a great question. It's a great question. Um, the, to- the modalities, the tools that I use to treat a patient are kind of irrelevant, hmm. to be honest. Um, I mean, we can, any anything, whether I do uh, apply needles, whether I do body work or mint or breath work, whatever it is, it's all gonna work. But um, the thing that makes it um, different or, or, or accurate is the assessment. And there's there's a few, a few strategies that I use. 
One is um, uh, neurokinetic therapy, if you're familiar with that, um, NKT for short. And basically what that is, it's a series of um, really basic muscle tests that help identify dysfunctional um, relationships of between the soft tissues in the body. So we're testing things like muscles. Um, we're testing things like ligaments, um, anything with proprioceptive receptors, right? Sure. Um, uh, scar tissue is huge too. Um, so we're basically running these muscle tests to understand how your brain is communicating with the rest of your body. And if there are any miscommunications or compensation patterns that have developed over time for whatever reason, injury, mm -hmm. repetitive movement, repetitive lack of movement, whatever it is, um, we're able to identify what those patterns exactly are. That way I know exactly what we're working with what structures need to be released, which stru structures need to be um, activated or strengthened, mm. um, and, and how it all might be playing into whatever condition, pain or uh, some kind of dysfunctional pattern. Um, so once we know that information, then I'll know exactly what to do and how to treat it. Um, and based on you know, a number of factors with the patient, sometimes people don't like needles and they don't wanna be stuck with a bunch of acupuncture needles and that's okay. Um, you know, I reach into my, my toolbox of modalities and you know, we go that's a good answer. You mentioned, yeah. you mentioned the physical body and the, and the mental body, right? So I, this is having those two in line are, is, is a, it's kind of a, a new, a newer sort of theory or application to, to the, to the being of a, a human being. And, mm -hmm. and so, so I wanted to ask you personally, like, how do you align your physical body and your mental body? That's such a good question. I'm getting chills as you're saying that. Mm. And, um, here goes another one. I just got another one that <laughs> happens when whatever I'm talking about, whenever I'm interacting with someone, if it's resonating or if it's a really important conversation, a really important topic, I get this like visceral, like reaction. Heck yes. So we're going down a good path here. I'm, I'm <laughs> question. Um, I like before I answer it, I want to throw in a third part of the body. And I know, you know where I'm going with this and that's the spiritual aspect. Of course. Right? So the mind, the body, the, the physical body, the emotional body, and the spiritual body, all, they all matter. They all matter. And for, mm. you know, you know, mainstream sports medicine and, and main medicine in general, a lot of times we just focus on the physical body. And as you mentioned, this whole idea, this like kind of revolution of opening ourselves up to exploring the emotional body and the spiritual body too, it's such an important thing that's, that's happening. And I'm so glad you brought it up. So to answer your question, what do I do personally? Um, I meditate a lot. I do a lot of um, uh, restorative type of movement and movements that make my mind connect to my body. And mm -hmm. what I mean by that is um, challenging my balance. So maybe standing on one foot, right? Mm -hmm. Standing on, you know, unstable surfaces like a, you know, uh, like an Eric's pad or maybe a little Dyna disc or even like a yoga mat can, can provide some instability, right? Sure. When my balance is challenged, it forces my mind to focus on being present in my body, right? Um, so, uh, you know, light impact, restorative type of mindful movement is a big practice of mine, aside from meditation that I do all day, every day, you know, I never miss. So yeah. meditation, meditation is a really big for me. Patrick, do you want to ask the meditation question? You want me to ask it? <laughs> you ask it. Somebody ask it. <laughs> okay. Oh. Okay. So, so we, we ask all of our guests this, it, this is, um, I'm going to see if I can get this right. So when, when, when you sit and meditate, right, we, we can, 
if I was in the room with you, I could see your physical body. I could see the shape you're creating, whether it's, you know, cross-legged or sukhasana, if you want to call it, you know, a comfy seat, um, a yoga shape, or, or, or maybe it's sitting in a chair. Um, so I'm not really interested in how that looks aesthetically, but what we're really interested in is what's, what's the experience like when you drop into a meditation internally? Like, like, can you explain that to, to some of our listeners? I think it's meditation beyond has a biological beyond biological. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's a great question. And, um, the first thing I'll say is meditation isn't always sitting down or being still mm. meditation can be movement. I like it. <laughs> yeah. Of course. And, um, so what it feels like to me is, uh, you know, I, I keep thinking this, I, I keep picturing this meme that I see on social media sometimes. And I think it's Lisa Simpson. I don't know if you've seen this one, but there's two like side-by-side -side pictures of Lisa Simpson laying in bed. And one side shows her, you know, like completely passed out in her bed, just like a hot mess. And then the other side is like her in this beautiful lotus position with a beautiful aura. And it's it, the, the, the line says something like, what I, what I think I look like over here in this blissful state, what I think I look like and what I feel like in meditation, but what my physical body looks like is this <laughs> over here. So I think that's a really good um, visual of what it feels like to meditate. It's like you, at least I, I experience this deeper, you know, when I drop into a deep meditation is um, I become light. I become mm. energy. Um, I become um, this force that has no physical presence. If that, mm. if that makes sense or no physical, you know, I, I become, <laughs> oh, he's, he's raising his hand. Yes. <laughs> that is me? the first time. That's the yeah. first time anyone's yeah. ever actually told us what meditation feels like. Oh. Yes. Thank you. It's always like a round. <laughs> it's always a roundabout answer that, that doesn't answer the question. So appreciate it. Yeah. I think that the, the, the dissolving of the physicality of the body is where meditation really begins. And yeah. I think that mm. there's a, there's a really big difference between, um, so I will, I will say this. I don't think, I don't think actually think medi meditation can happen in movement. I think that that is being meditative. And I think being in meditation and being meditative are, are different things. And I have a, I don't know, maybe an hour and a half long podcast going into those things. So no need to go into that because everybody's heard it, but I do think that the, there is a lack of awareness around the importance of dissolving of the physicality of the body and uh, to get it back into the physical world, right? If you're in pain, if you have, if you have lumbar dysfunction and every time you sit down, um, you are feeling a pain that is riding up the, the left side of the spinal column, you're not going to be able to dissolve the physical sensation of your body, right? So we do need, we do need the, the, the physicality of life or the physical, the extra physicality of movement to heal our body enough so that we can sit comfortably again, yeah. <laughs> as, as, as amazing as that is. Yeah. Well, the other thing too, is we, we have tools that we can use to, to, um, to make meditation, the physical aspect of meditation too. Like we can sit you know, we can sit on cushions, we can raise ourselves up off the floor. Um, sure. You know, so there's a lot of different ways we can prop ourselves up and um, everyone's going to be a little bit different, but finding that position where you can relax and let go of the physical body makes the whole process a lot easier. You're, you're exactly right. I took a, I took a, a class in 
in restorative yoga at spirit of yoga. And that's, that's where, so I don't have lumbar dysfunction, but I played golf in college. I played a scooch professionally and I, I have a little Brian's bit of about to tell us about his lumbar dysfunction. By the way. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I said it didn't have any, but anyways, yeah, no, I, I, I do have some, I guess clearly. So <laughs> with the lumbar dysfunction, we were, we were set up <laughs> with my, we were, we were set up in, in a space that, that, I was basically laying on my back, right? And it was, I was propped up as if I were pregnant. So that's what we were, we were kind of tailoring this piece of the, of the, of the practice to, to a woman who was pregnant. And in that, and then we went through a meditation after that. And, I, and that was the first time that I, that my physical body dissolved and I was just pure light, pure energy, just like you were just describing. And so now I set myself up when I, when I drop into these meditations, I set myself up in a way that just like you were mentioning that, that supports myself. So, so there is no, there is no pain. There is no discomfort there. And, and I'm e not easily, but in, in a much, much more functional way, able to drop into those, to those grander sort of experiences. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. I had a teacher once talk about um, like finding a comfortable spot, even like getting a patient comfortable laying on the table. Um, a great way to get somebody tuned in is uh, to get them to tune into other parts of their body. Like for example, your nose, mm. right? So if you just, without touching your nose, can you feel your nose just sitting here? Mm. Probably not, right? Mm. Can you feel your face? Can you feel your forehead as you're just sitting here comfortably? Probably not, right? You have to actually touch it or become aware of it Mm. Uh, like hyper aware of it in order to feel it. And that's how we want your body to feel the whole body. We want your whole body to feel like your face when mm. you're laying down in a comfortable position or se getting seated into a meditation. If you can, if you can find, you know, some bolsters, some pillows, some blankets, something to prop you up to support your whole body in a way to the point where your whole body feels like your face where you don't feel it. That's, that's kind of the name of the game right there. That's, yeah. that's the goal. And um, sometimes that can be, it can be challenging, but when you find the right spot, you, you know, you know, exactly yeah. right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, okay. I, I want to talk about the, since we're, since we're talking about a stacked spinal column in the moment mm -hmm. um, and, we're, and we're talking about how, how um, much pain, how much pain that the general populace is resisting within. Um, I have over the last month or so started to come around to an idea that the concept of humans shrinking as we age is actually just a byproduct of having a disengaged uh, torso, posterior and anterior chain, um, and the weight of our, of our musculature just hanging on our bone structure, because I, I mm. see humans, we just tend to just deactivate everything and just hang and we get this spinal flexion and we get this like hunching and we get this, this anterior shoulder forward collapsing. Um, and I've realized based on Tadasana or mountain pose or standing in the line at the grocery store, right? I got this <laughs> exact same shape. Um, I can go through a 15 minute sequence in a yoga class and you can see people like add a half inch of height to their body and then, and then walk out of class and it's like right back down. <laughs> Do you think it's possible that if we maintain, um, like active trunk awareness, 
So like 10 to 15% active engagement around the trunk 24 hours a day, or at least through consciousness that we could, we could fight off or maybe not even experience human shrinkage as we age. Absolutely. Yeah. Done. I, <laughs> I, think, I think as part of that though, we need to sit less throughout the day, right? Cause when we sit down, you know, we do there, we have gravity kind of pulling us down onto the chair. So we do have a little bit, a little bit of compression, right? In that seated position. But from a neurological, ner a nervous system standpoint, if we sit in a chair for the lar large majority of the day, if we, if we take what we know about the nervous system in that it's going to adapt to things that are in its environment, it's going to um, try to conserve as much energy as possible, right? For survival. Um, it's going to, um, unplug, right, or detach structures that it doesn't need to be working moment. So if you're sitting in a chair for the large majority of the day, and that chair is providing you with stability and safety, right, it's preventing you from falling over and hitting the floor, then your brain, your, your nervous system kind of, kind of becomes dependent on that chair. And here's an opportunity to conserve some energy. So what a lot of times will happen that I see in my clinic is the brain will detach from that intrinsic core. All those, those small muscles that go right along the spine that keep you upright, they get all unplugged, right? If you're spending hours and hours and hours sitting in a chair and that chair is providing you with your basic survival needs, then there's no, re there's no reason, there's no need for your internal stabilizers to do the job. So to conserve energy, boom, they get unplugged. But when we stand up and we go to yoga, we go to the gym, we, we go from here to there, we need our stabilizers to work. We need them plugged in. But because we spend so much time sitting down and that becomes our new normal, so we, right, our brain adapts to that um, lack of movement, we the, what happens is those muscles don't activate when we need them to, as we need them to in that moment. So what ends up happening then is some other structure somewhere else in the body picks up the slack and that's how we get compensations. So if we want to maintain our posture, right, throughout our lives, yes, I think it's possible. But number two, like, I think it's a, a big component of that is not sitting down, standing up, supporting your own body weight. And, and keeping your brain connected to those intrinsic core muscles. Yeah, 100%. There's, there's, a, there's a, so I just transitioned from, from Optimize into um, to, to, my new, to my new role um, as, a, as a global sales manager for, for this company called Sacred Plant Company. It's just a little company called Sacred Plant Company. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm laughing because Patrick owns the company and I work for him. So, oh, yeah. Um, but yeah, so, so I've, I've transitioned from, from moving from moving around at Optimize, right, for eight hours a day and, and never sitting down to having an opportunity to set up my desk in a way that that supports the standing up um, theory, right, that you're, that you're explaining. And I've, I've, I've noticed a huge difference in, in my ability to become aware of the areas that, I, that are not activated when I'm standing in mountain pose or Tadasana or at the grocery line, whatever you want to describe it, right? So, and with, with some of those activation things that you were just like describing, the activation of the core, the activation of even like the legs and the, and the quads, working your way up from the floor, it's, it has profoundly changed how my lower back feels. So it's, it's, it's and even then providing myself with, with um, 
so when you stand up, if you, if you want to get yourself a standing up desk, that's great. But then also think about what surface your, your feet are on, because I, I started off with just carpet and then my lower back was hurting like crazy because it was that instability. Like you were saying in the yoga mat, right? There was like this, this, yeah. this instability is a good way to say it. So I've now recently placed like this plastic piece of, um, of, material on the ground and it's, it's changed the way I've, I feel. So it's, I don't know, having like a stable surface also seems to make a profound difference for me. Is that something you would agree upon? Like really thinking about what you're standing on? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think what you, what, and, and it, it kind of depends on, are you wearing shoes, socks, or are you barefoot? Barefoot. Yeah. Okay, you're barefoot. Okay, cool. So I'm a big advocate for being barefoot as often as possible, as I mentioned at the beginning. So whatever it is you're feeling, right, between, between your foot and the ground is going to be sending your brain inf information, right? There's a lot of nerve endings in your feet, just like there are in your hands. And this is how we communicate with our environment. If you're someone that, um, you know, spends all day wearing shoes and you go outside barefoot and, you know, maybe you walk across some rocks, your feet are going to be hypersensitive. It's going to be really, really hard to do, right? Um, because, you know, all that, the, the nerve endings, the nerves on the bottoms of your feet are, are not used to transmitting that type of energy, right? They're not used to uh, touching that type of, of surface. So I think it's a great thing that you can get your bare feet on a lot of different types of surfaces as often as possible. And the only thing, the, the reason I say that is because, it's only going to send, keep sending information to your spinal cord and to your brain with, when you, when you feel different types of textures and different types of terrain with your bare feet, it's going to just keep sending information to your brain and sending information to your brain over and over and over again. And that's what we want. We want as much information going to our brain as possible yeah. so that our brain then knows how to react and it knows what structures to fire what, you know, what we need to do, you know, do I need to fire up my proprioceptors? Do I need to react a little quicker to catch my balance if I'm going to fall over, right? If it's yeah. a rough terrain, right? Um, so barefoot, yes. Um, I think the, the type of surface you stand on, again, it's just going to keep sending different types of information to your brain. So um, I would actually encourage you to, to keep changing the type of surface you're standing on, okay. keep your brain connected yeah. and, and activated. I, I didn't think of it as, as, as the connecting to the brain piece. That's, it, it makes total sense. I, I just skipped that part. It's more of like a, it's a feeling for me, but, but the feeling can also be described as that connection of the signal you're receiving from your brain, which is starts from the feet. Well, absolutely. And, and yeah. the nerve endings in your feet, they come out of the spine. The part of the spine they came out of is the lower part of the spine, right? The yeah. lumbar and the sacrum. So if you have lumbar pain, one of the best things you can do is get barefoot and go walk on some different types of surfaces. I, so I tried to play, my dog is barking. So if you hear that, that's Scooby, but um, it, it was, <laughs> I, I tried to play golf. I tried to play golf. I played golf in, 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 in spikes my entire life. And I, I swear by having that, that really solid connection it helps me turn and pivot and create power. So I tried to, to play barefoot and I, I played terrible. It was like this, it was like as if, a light switch went off and, and I, and I lost the, the motor, the motor mechanics, the muscle memory I created of years of playing. And it went back to, it, I went back to like 12, 13, when I was like really working on the, the foundation, the mechanics of the golf swing. And it was, it was interesting what 
what habits came back that I remembered from that time of my life. It was very, very strange how just the simple fact of like changing the interaction with the earth or the ground, the surface you're on, mm-hmm. how much that can change the physical expression that you're trying to create. Oh, totally. Wild. Yeah. Yeah. That's a so back to cleats for me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, there's, I, I think there's a few companies out there, some barefoot shoe companies that mm. are now starting to make um, athletic shoes and, and so. Heck yeah. Yeah, so they have the yeah. wide toe box and all of that. So check yeah. It. yeah. <clears throat> okay, I want to highlight. I want to highlight something that you said, and uh, use Sarah. I want to highlight something that you said. Plus, okay. use use kind of a, an example that a lot of people are familiar with, right? Because pretty often someone will go to uh, see a doctor. They'll say, "Hey, I'm having some lumbar pain." They'll get sent to some type of specialist who will charge them two to six hundred dollars for some inserts, right? Huh? And uh, in a temporary way that that can alleviate the symptom of pain. Right? Um, but what it doesn't do, and what I think you called out, is it doesn't strengthen doesn't strengthen the foot, doesn't strengthen the musculature needed to actually cr- to remove the pain sensation. It does make right. you very dependent on always having an insert around. Right. Um, and I love the fact that you talked about about str- like, hey, if you have lumbar pain go, go like challenge that musculature and develop the strength and like do the work. Essentially it's do the work. The reality is it's do the work. (laughs) That's what it comes down to, right? We all have work. Yes. But, but, but as we were talking about sitting, we're talking about sitting and we're talking about feet and we're talking about arches. I, I just like, I want to use this analogy and I want to see if you agree with it and I can't imagine you won't, but maybe you won't. Um, but putting an arch, uh, putting an arch support in your shoe is the equivalent of thinking you're going to build foot strength by sitting on the couch all day is the exact same thing, right? It's like, turn the musculature off and just let it do its thing. That'll fix it. Yeah. Right. It's, it's kind of like a bandaid mm. for yeah. sure. A bandaid. Yeah. It doesn't, yeah. It, doesn't, it doesn't fix the dysfunction. Um, again, like you said, it, it, it just, it gives you the perception of improved pain. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't necessarily fix the combination of dysfunctions that's causing the dysfunction in the, right. Or the, I would argue it makes it worse. Yeah. You, again, you become dependent on it and you can't go without it eventually. Right. If you wear them for so long and you, that if you're wearing a shoe insert, that means you're wearing shoes for the majority of the day, which is going to restrict how your toes are functioning and how your forefoot's functioning. Um, you're, you're in shoes all day long. They're like, it's like wearing gloves all day. Hoofs. Mm. It's like wearing hoofs. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So yeah, I, I think, um, and again, there's, there's a population of people that I think, um, shoe inserts are beneficial for, right. I, I think, um, an older population, um, a population who, um, uh, for whatever reason, you know, can't can't there maybe they're they can't get active they can't be more active uh, for whatever reason i think an older population sometimes um just to help mitigate their pain the shoe insert will be you know life-changing honestly um because there's likely with that population they'll have a lot of other health issues that that are higher priority um so in that sense yes shoe inserts are great but for you know general population active population um active adults you know adult athletes you know do the work get with a specialist and, and do the work to functions. 
You didn't hear it from us. You're hearing from Sarah, not, not that's Brian right. or Patrick. Sarah said it. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, that's a really, yeah. that's a, that's a really well-placed call out there. I really like that. The, there is a reality that there is a time and place um, for, for symptom reduction, right? It, yeah. it, it, symptom reduction can be very important. I just, I just think it's, it's remarkably important to understand that symptom reduction is not the same as problem solving. Yes. I agree. hundred percent. You're right. Um, okay. So uh, back to the, we were circling a long ways back, but we're, we're at the feet. So, the, so I think this is an appropriate time for this question. Um, you mentioned, you actually, you actually thought about saying um, upstream and downstream, but you changed it to like from the floor up. And I think that's a really interesting, a, a really interesting and appropriate way. And I, I, I love this question, especially, especially in the world of movement of like, which direction is the stream operating from, right? So is this, is the stream operating from the top of the cervical spine down, or is the stream operating from the bottom of the feet up? And, um, I want to hear your answer before I extrapolate. (laughs) Um, It depends. What's the fulcrum? What's the, what's the movement? You know? So, yeah. No, I, I think, I think it is, I think it is constantly both ways, actually. I, I, I actually don't even think it's dependent upon the movement. I think that if you have cervical spine dysfunction, you're going to end up with, um, distal tibial and fibial dysfunction, right? It, it's like, you're, you're going to change your gait if, if the, if the upstream or downstream, depending on how you're looking at the body has dysfunction, yeah. it's going to change the way that you move. And by changing the way you move, like if you change your step, you're going to end up with either, with either a shift in your, in your distal head or your proximal head of the tibia and fibia, right? If the gait changes, you end up with bone, with bone shifts. So, um, I actually think it's constantly both ways, no matter what, but I yeah. do, it's a fascinating, it's a fascinating thought exercise. I love thinking about where, where movement dysfunction is truly coming from and where, where it is landing. Sure. Yeah. That's, that's a great point. And, and I, I would agree with that. I think you're right. Um, you know, if you look at it from like a, a trunk rotation standpoint, if you, if the first thing that moves, if you keep your, you know, if you keep your spine upright from you know, C1 all the way down to your sacrum, right? And you rotate on like a spigot, right? You can only rotate so far. But if you turn your head and you look at what you're rotating towards, right? You get your eyes involved in on it, right? You get your, you look and then you rotate, you might see that you can rotate a little bit further simply sure. by turning your eyes, sure. right? Hmm. Um, and, sure. and looking at whatever it is you're trying to move towards, it's, um, For- yeah. So in that sense, yeah, you're right. Like, if I just try to, you know, turn on a spigot, I can only go so far, but if I get my eyes in on it, I can cover a lot more range. So it, it can go both ways. Definitely. <laughs> That's going to leave me thinking about that all night long, dude. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Appreciate that. Yeah. I've never really thought of it that way, but the eyes are like a huge piece to, to the whole mechanics of, of, of functional movement. Right. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's our, yeah, hundred percent. Eyes are the window to the soul. Right? Mm. Yeah, it like kind of ties. They tie everything together. Yeah. And the muscles, the musculature, you know, the, and the nerves of the eye impact what happens in the back of the skull in the suboccipital. So, you know, extension, rotation, and any combination of of all these degrees of freedom in in the spine, a lot of it has to do with how your eyes are involved. 
If, if, if the eyes are the window to the soul, and I like to think of the breath as the language of the spirit or soul, what, so, so what, what's the hearing? <laughs> what's the, that's, that's fair too. No, but my real, my, 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 my question really, really was about like, so like, how do you, how do, how do then, how does then the breath speak to you? Like how, cause you mentioned breath work is a practice of yours, right? And it's a, it's a passion of, of mine as well. Um, how does that impact, impact how you, how you interact with your, with your clients? How does my breath? Or, like how, or, or how does breath work in general? Yeah. In general, how, how does that relate to, or, or, or tie into the things that you, that, that you teach with your, oh, your clients? Well, I, I use breath in a, in a lot of ways in my practice, just for me personally, when I'm with a patient, um, breathing for me keeps me in my body mm. and it, and it, and it helps me keep my energetic guard up so that I don't absorb whatever my patient is bringing in. Mm. So, That's, yeah. So staying centered and being, um, you know, connected to my breath helps me do that one way. It also helps me tune into, um, you know, my, my, my touch too. So when I'm taking a pulse or when I'm palpating patient's body, right. Feeling for adhesions or feeling for any, you know, just assessing them. Um, my breath helps me stay connected and it enhances my sense of touch. So I can really get a better feel for what's happening in their body and not even just their physical body too. Like, staying centered and using breath, I can feel their energy. I don't even have to touch them. So breath work for me as a pr practitioner is huge. It's huge for a lot of reasons. Um, breath for my patient can be both treatment and it can be diagnostic. So if I'm watching my patient breathe and I'm just seeing the rise and the fall of their shoulders and maybe a little expansion of their chat of their, of their ribs, it, it tells me that they're stuck up in their neck and their shoulders, right? Yeah. It, it could, they could be very much stuck and likely they're stuck in a, in a sympathetic response in that fight or flight mm. part of the nervous system in a way that they're not getting grounded. Their breath isn't getting grounded into their diaphragm, into their lower abdomen, which is a much more parasympathetic rest and digest type of breath, like a recovery mm. breath. So, you know, that's one way uh, from a patient standpoint, you know, it can be, treatment, it can be diagnostic. Um, there's a few exercises that I'll do too, where I use the breath um, as a release technique, right? Where I might just very lightly with maybe one or two pounds of pressure, touch a muscle or a joint or something that's dysfunctional, right? Something that just feels stuck just so that they have a little bit of awareness of what, whatever it is I'm touching, right? And then I'll have them direct their breath to that area that I'm touching. And from the inside out, we get mobility. We get a joint mobe, so to speak, right? Whereas I, I wouldn't have to go in and manually do the therapy. I can just give them a, a little cue and have their breath do the work. And that's treatment. So, right. um, you know, there's a lot of ways. Oh, another way that I'll use breath too is um, it helps me understand how, how much control they have over their movement. Right. If they're if they're trying to perform a movement that they don't own. Right. And by ownership, I mean a, a movement that they can just relax into and, and perform start to finish without losing their balance or without straining too much. Right. If you have to force your way into a movement to complete a rep, then you don't own it. There's something there that needs to be corrected, whether it's stability, whether it's mobility, whatever it is, a strength issue, anything. 
Um, so if they're holding their breath and they're wincing like this as they're moving, they've gone too far. They're working at a capacity that's beyond what they can, mm. you know, perform. Safely. I see a lot of that on the yoga mat too, as well. People mm -hmm. going past their edge and, and the breath suspended while they're past their edge or moving okay. towards that edge. Yeah. They say, oh, you know, look what I can do. I can muscle yeah. that. Okay, cool. But like, it kind of, it looks like it's painful. Sure. <laughs> it probably <laughs> is. If someone that has the strength, the stability, the mobility, they have the, all the access, they, they own that movement. They should be able to complete it start to finish and never lose their breath. Never. So, so breath is huge for a lot of reasons. Did you, when you were playing, so Patrick played college baseball, I played college golf, you played college softball, correct? Yes, I did. Yeah. So, <clears throat> so I did my research. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, so what, so did you, were you aware of the breath during your competitive days? Oh yeah. Oh, and I Me wish neither. I was. Me too. I, if only, you know, I knew then what I knew now. You know? I've right. A hundred percent. And one of the, what are the things they talk about a lot on the PGA tour? I'm going to nerd on some golf for a second, but what, what, what are they, what are they, what they talk about a lot on the PGA tour is breath control, right? And, and particularly in between your, your moment of execution, the more, the moment of performance, right? So as if you're, you can use any analogy you want to any sport really. So in between plays in football, like while you're in the batter's box in baseball, before you swing, before a ground ball comes to you, before you hit the golf ball, before you swing, before you get ready to feel the gr a ground ball in softball, uh, whatever, yeah. whatever it may be like. So sure. that, and, and so I used to be a, a super golf nerd <laughs> then follow around Tiger Woods, like really specifically uh, go to golf courses or tournaments and follow him around. And one thing that I noticed that I, but I never understood until we're having this conversation right now is the amount of effort and energy he put into simply modulating his breath. It was, it was never, it was never through the mouth. It was always through the nose. His mouth was never open. It was, and it, it was always this, he walked with such a rhythm that you, you could tell his gait, right, was 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 a was a function of the breath. It was it was as if the breath was moving him, yes. and and it was God giving me the goosebumps thinking about it, like just how in tune he was with that. But now they're just just starting to like roll out into like this broad spectrum on the tour and, and other sports as well of how important it is to connect the breath to whatever you're doing, whether or not you're standing up making sales calls or whether or not you're planting seeds in the earth or whether or not you're packing herbs or whether or not you're with, with a, uh, a client in your clinic, right? So it, it, the, the breath is such a tool to, to modulate your, your human existence. I would invite anybody into just exploring their breath a little bit deeper. Yeah. I love that. Right. I, I think breath is underrated and it's, it's, it's probably the most readily available self tool that we all have, regardless of, you know, who, wherever we are, whatever we're doing, breathing. Beautifully you know? put. And, and if we take just maybe one or two of those breaths that we're going to be taking anyway all day, <laughs> we put some attention behind it and intention behind it. Mm -hmm. It can really, it can just, it can change your day, right? It can, it, it's incredibly beneficial. So, um, you know, if we just take one of those breaths or two of those breaths or just a couple minutes and put it behind it, it's incredible mm -hmm. what, what it can do. Incredible. Yeah. Thank you for that. Of course. Yeah. Thank you for this conversation. I'm enjoying the heck out of it. Yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> These are like the ones we love so much. They're su super organic and just like, 
just we're flow. We're flowing out. It's beautiful. Yeah, it's just fun. If you could, if you had, if we, if you could, let's give you Sarah, if you, if you were able to craft a program for young athletes, mm-hmm. right? Because I think, you know, it's so easy, right? You look back um, and you're like, well, I didn't really understand the, the mechanisms of movement, right? And at the same time, um, like you guys are talking about, you know, somebody's in a yoga class and they're, they're overextending a lot of times they don't even understand the responsibility of the shape. Right. So one of the things that I think is really important from a teaching perspective is like, Hey, if, if we're talking about triangle, the responsibility of the shape in triangle is both a safety of, of the, of the knee mechanism, safety of the hamstring mechanism, but also the length of the spine, which is, a, which is a portion that is just generally fought through. It's just, how can I contort my body so that uh, my hand gets as close as possible to the floor? <laughs> but if you start talking about, Hey, your responsibility is length of the spine, then, then there's a, there's a shift. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not sure. One of the challenges I have, right. Is I, I um, I'm not remarkably capable of communicating complex ideas <laughs> period. How about that? I'm not remarkably capable of, of communicating complex ideas. Period. Uh, but but translating those ideas down to, to 10 and 12 year olds is remarkably difficult. Um, I've attempted that several times and I would say I've failed pretty much all the time. Um, part of it is that as we're little kids, our, our body does feel like our face, right? Like nothing hurts when you're a little mm-hmm. kid. There, right. There's not a movement that you can get into that, that provides you negative feedback. Everything feels natural because everything is natural. Mm-hmm. Um, it is the way you've been taught to move or the way you've observed movement around you. Mm-hmm. But if you are going to craft something for a young athlete, and I think that, you know, if you go too young, it doesn't really matter. Uh, you could start with something, you could start with appropriate Tadasana, but I can't, I can't work with a six-year-old brain, but if I was going to work with a 12-year-old brain or a 13-year-old brain, right? Like aspirations of college could begin at the beginning of high school, right? So if we're looking at a a 12 to 13-year-old, what is something that you would do to really instill some type of a future benefit, a future program that would offer benefit for athletic performance, as well as the reality that you're probably not going to be a professional athlete, but you are going to live with all the injuries that you create for yourself over the next eight to 10 years while you attempt that dream. That's a great question. And there's, I'm racking my brain. There's so much that would go into, but ultimately when we're dealing with young people, and this is true for adults too. So I think I would apply this, what I'm about to say to a 12 or 13 year old to adults also is first keep it simple first keep it simple um not giving them too many cues about movement just say hey this is this is the goal this is what we're trying to accomplish do it in a way that feels good to you and i think that will give them enough cue to first um just be in their bodies um to try something new and different but also maybe to try it a couple different ways, a few different ways until they feel, um, feel it click, right? When, when you feel like when you get into flow state, you know, you're in it. When you do something that is strong and powerful and explosive, you feel like it resonates through your body to coach somebody through that. Sometimes like 
using too many words or too many cues is, is not going to get it done. It's just, it's just more confusion. So just telling them, you know, leading that, maybe demonstrating a movement and say, okay, this is what we're trying to accomplish. Do it and see how it feels. If it feels good, great. Try it in maybe another way to see if it can feel better. Right. And that I think will bring them into their bodies. It'll connect their mind and their body together. It'll build their body awareness. And just through that, they'll gain more um, proprioception. They'll, they'll gain more um, confidence in their movement. And hopefully that would, ins- like, it would inspire them to keep moving through th- throughout their life and trying different things. Um, but keeping it simple um, and allowing them the freedom to play and asking for that feedback, how does that feel? Does it feel good? Does it feel not good? And how can it feel better? Try it in a different way. Um, that's what I would do. I like it. Can I, can I drill into, so what position did you play in softball? I played second base. Second base. So overhand yeah. throws. Um, I was more of a sidearm. I was quick sidearm overhand. Yeah. Mix, mix of all. But the, but the shoulder mechanism is relatively centered. Do you think that there is, so do you think there's a key for uh, preventing humoral head displacement within the overhand throwing mechanism? Sure. What is it? I mean, is it scapular retraction? It's stability. Stability, yeah. It's it's stability. (laughs) Fair, fair. Okay, fair. Yeah. How can we how can we get more granular around that answer? Like what so so I, I would say we're we're in a we're in a world of uh, relative instability around humoral head placement. Um, sure. and that comes from the from the amount of time we spend seated at a computer or looking at a phone, right? Like yeah. we are we are just head in placement. in this yeah rounded front shoulder position, way too much time to expect uh, normal humoral head function. I think it's just, it's just very, very tough, but in sports that have an awful lot of, of overhand throwing mechanism, the, the, the torque that is put on the end of that, of that movement is really, it's pulling against the stability, right? So, so even if, so I would say this, even if you had normal um, stabilizing musculature around the shoulder, you have the capacity as a human to overextend the structure of, of the humerus um, with a throwing mechanism. So even with normal stabilization, I think you, you can lengthen that musculature just from the fear, from the pure torque at the end range of the motion, um, where you have permanent dysfunction in that stability musculature. So I'm looking at how you create a mechanism of movement, mm-hmm. um, that provides both the performance of the overhand throw something that's pretty integral to, to human evolution, right? Like we've been throwing things overhand for a pretty darn long time, 200,000 plus years easy. Yeah. <laughs> um, but we still don't seem to be remarkably well adapt, adapted to that specific mechanism, at least with like a stone shaped object, like a spherical object. Um, like it's a different thing. It's very different. Yeah. I mean, no matter what you're doing, a throwing motion involves a lot more than just the shoulder. 
you know that, right? You were a baseball player, right? So that's something to consider too. It's like, we're not just talking about the shoulder complex itself. We're looking at the whole fascial sling. We're looking at, um, you know, you're stepping with your opposite foot. You're pushing off with your back foot, right? So we're looking at that, you know, hip extension and the follow through that, that, and so it's, it's a whole dynamic movement of the body as a whole, not just the shoulder. So, you know, to, to, to nail it down, to kind of pinpoint one or two things with this motion, I think that's really hard to do because it's such a dynamic full body movement that involves so much more than just the shoulder. So I, I you know, I kind of threw out, oh, stability. Yeah, that's, that's true, but there's so much more to beyond that. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah it definitely does. It's, it's yeah. a pretty interesting, there's an, uh, yeah. <laughs> there's a lateral edge there's a left so if you're right-handed there's a very interesting lateral edge of your left, left. hip component yeah mm-hmm. um which is so so i guess what's fascinating about this right is i've never heard i've never really heard anybody talk about um there's a lot of really expensive sh- shoulder surgeries specifically designed to repair that the problems that happen from that movement, but I haven't ever actually heard anyone um, really think through the mechanisms of creating stability through, through a 90 mile an hour release of the shoulder. Um, yeah, that's, and, I mean, yeah, I think it's, I think there's actually something there though. I think that, I think that, extending, extending the scope actually may be really valuable. And again, I don't think I've ever heard anybody talk about it, but someone should. Yeah. I mean, when you get up to the higher levels, you know, a lot of my colleagues that, that work in, in professional sports and in particular, you know, I, I do work with a lot of baseball players here this time of year in spring training, we get a lot of in town. Um, you know, throwing isn't just about the arm and the shoulder. It start and every movement, just like we talked about earlier, every movement starts either from the top or the bottom, right? From the ground up, mm-hmm. right? So we have to look at, you know, that push off of the back foot, right? That generating that power, generating a force between your foot and the ground, like a pitcher, for example. Mm-hmm. If you're a pitcher, you're generating a force between your foot and the pitcher's mound. And that force comes up through your body and is released through the shoulder. Mm-hmm. So to reach that 90 mile an hour plus fastball, it's not just your arm, it's your entire body and the force that you're generating from the ground that's coming up through your entire body. So there's that power aspect coming off of that same side, that backside foot and leg. And then there's that stability part that's coming from the front side that you have to rotate up and over and follow through over, right? And you have the deceleration aspect too, right? That um, that follow through after you release the ball, the movement doesn't stop there. The movement keeps going long, long after you, you let go of the ball. Right. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's a lot of components that are involved in that throwing motion in any motion to be, to be frank. Um, so if there is ever a problem here, right. If there's pain here, it doesn't necessarily mean that's where the problem is. Now there they'll, like you mentioned, you know, some, there's rotator cuff damage, there's labral tears, there's ligament issues sometimes, right? There's tendonitis. And that's obviously local, local pain. But the dysfunction isn't always rooted in the shoulder. It can be rooted anywhere else in the body. And that's where assessments like an SFMA, a selective functional movement, um, 
or the NKT neurokinetic therapy assessment that I talked about earlier, that's where all that can come in handy. Because the place that hurts on your body is not always the root cause of the pain. That dysfunction can be somewhere else. Does. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, they have they have those they have those floor plates now that, that, that can measure the force um, or the amount of energy that you're generating. From yeah. they, they have like a, a dual one for a golf swing, and then I know they have one for a pitcher's mound as well that, that measures yeah how much force you're generating from the earth through the throw or through the golf swing. Yeah, That's so, technology is so yeah cool. so cool that has these little um, these little uh, these little computer chips that they'll put in their shoe, the shoe inserts that meant, huh. um, you know, power and explosiveness and, and all of that. So that when the, when it shoots data back to the coaches, they can identify, you know, um, how strong the, the, you know, how strong their performance is and basically like when to program in, um, recovery and when to, when they can like me amp up their, um, their volume. Their so it's really, really fascinating. That kind of technology is up and coming and yeah yeah that's cool yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm looking forward to a personal i'm looking forward to the opportunity of working with you and I, I know that we've we've communicated back and forth several times so yeah, I'm, we'll I'm have gonna, to happen soon yeah we will for sure i'm super i'm super grateful um for you in this moment yeah well, thank, thank you. you yeah thanks for having me yeah i'm on this was um this was a fun a fun dive into movement this was this was a good time great yeah yeah having a great Ryan, any, anything to wrap us up? Yeah, I got, I got one question for you. I got this question um, I like to ask a lot of our guests. So um, thanks for the segue, Patrick. <laughs> so, so throughout your life, right, you, you've, you've said yes to things. You said no's, you said a lot of no's to things. So what has been more impactful, the things you've said yes to or the things you've said no to? Oh, that's a great question. What's been most impactful for me things that I've said yes to things that I've said, Oh gosh. I think that every time I've said yes to doing something that scares the shit out of me, mm-hmm. it always works out. That's the first time you swear the whole time. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I knew I would make it the whole time. <laughs> I did pretty good though. Right. I did. You did. Heck yes. Yeah, Heck yes. Yes. So the but things you said yes to. Yeah. Yeah. I think saying yes to things that scare me. Mm. Those, those are the things that, um, work out the best. They, they, they always turn out, they always elevate me. Mm. So think saying yes to the, that shit that scares you. Yes. It's one of the most, been one of the most impactful things in my life too, is saying yes to the things that scare the shit out of me. Yeah. You end up with a lot of great stories too. (laughs) You do. You You do. I I have, I continue to accumulate those things. So it's, it's a challenge. It's definitely, it's not easy to do, um, you know, to face those fears and, and to do the, the hard thing, but man, I have journals full of stories and, and things that I can look back to, you know, years from now and, and say, I was a badass. I did some, yeah. I, did some I did some shit in my life. You That's know? it. That's it. Yeah. I'll, so that was I'll, a we'll we'll look for that book release then on the on the on your journaling of all the stories. Yeah. Well, hey, I do have a book coming out. I, okay. I am working on a book actually. Cool. TBD sometime towards the end of uh end of this year. Um, but it is coming. So thank you for that. And I think <laughs> and I think you have a special treat for our listeners too, which we'll put in the show notes. Correct? I do, yeah. 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 Something something that I um I work on with my patients a lot. Um, something that's been beneficial for me, and I'm sure you guys practice this too, is a morning routine. 
-hmm. right? Setting up your day um, in a way that's connected to all three of those parts of your body that we mentioned at the the beginning, right? Getting your physical body set up, Mm -hmm. getting your emotional body set up and your spiritual body set up first thing in the morning is probably the best way to set yourself up for a high performance day, Mm -hmm. right? To get everything dialed in and working you know, synergistically, all three of those bodies, you know, the, what you do and how you do it and the decisions you make will be 10 times. Well, don't, don't quote me on the 10 times, but it'll be a lot 11 times, 11 (laughs) times, 12 times, it'll be, be, you know, it'll be a a lot. uh, Your decisions will be clearer. Your actions will be more confident when you're dialed in first thing in the morning, rather than getting up and starting your day in chaos. Mm. Start your day with some focus and attend to all three of your bodies. And so I put together um, a checklist that I share with my patients um, just to help help them I, develop that morning routine. And so I wanted to give that to your listeners. That's amazing. Yeah, thank you. We will have a link to that in the show notes for this episode. Dara, thank you so much for your time on Becoming Legendary. Thanks for being rad. Keep doing rad things. Thanks, guys. This was a lot of fun. Yeah. Thank you, Sarah. Appreciate you so much. All right. You too. Thanks, guys.